Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. All right, so this morning we're going to pick up where we, where we sort of left off last week. We're dealing with uh, this issue of God's providence and God and evil and, and how God's knowledge works with everything that is uh, going on in our world, be it politically, be it personally, be it globally, whatever the case may be. So. Uh, and one of the things that we started off with is that God is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. And because he is all-knowing, there is nothing that goes on that surprises him. Uh, that means that there's also nothing we do individually that surprises him. He foreknows all things, as Paul tells us in Romans. Uh, he works all things out for the good of those who love him. So the question then becomes, does God cause evil, or does God use evil? He certainly allows evil. We see it all around us. So what is the relationship between God and sin, or God and evil? And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. This idea of God's providence brings with it some of the attributes of God that we had already talked about. So of course, or the one that we're currently talking about, which is God's omniscience. That God is all-knowing. It also has to do with God's immutability. That he is not capable, nor is he susceptible to change. Uh, God's aseity. That he is sufficient in himself to exist on his own. He is not created, but the power of God is strong enough to sustain God's existence. And finally, God's eternity. Because God sits outside of time, he does not experience time in the same way that we do, and uh, so his relationship to his knowledge and how events are going to come to pass is different than the way that we experience it. Uh, you remember when we talked about eternity, one of the things, or God's eternity, one of the things that we said is uh, God doesn't experience life moment by moment like we do. Uh, similarly, with his self-existence, we require time to pass in order for things to happen. Uh, for us, we, you know, we had to drive to church this morning in order to be able to fellowship together. Whereas for God, there's no drive, right? He fellowships with his creation. Uh, so, understanding these two things, of course, he's not subject to change because, again, he's not in that process of time like we are. He stands outside of that. And then he is all-knowing. And if he already knows all things, there is nothing which could change him anyway. So we started there, and then we said that as we think about God's providence, that his providence sort of works in three subcategories, and how he preserves creation, how he concurs with creation, or how he operates with it to bring out bring out his perfect plan, and then how he governs as a holy and just God. So this morning, then, we come to the idea of God and talked about this some at the end of last week, but I want to pick up quickly with the most equal deed in all of history, and that is the crucifixion of Christ. That was in God's perfect plan, that evil men would crucify the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. 
And if we turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 27, uh, we see there that the church of Jerusalem actually recognizes this. So Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan were predestined to take place. Now, as Baptists, that word predestined scared us. Um, we tend to associate that with uh, what theologically we term fatalism. Fatalism is this idea that it doesn't matter actually what you decide to do or how you decide to behave or what action it is that you take in your life because everything has already been predetermined for you and your own volition doesn't matter anyway. So the fact that I'm standing up here teaching you about God's providence is actually of no consequence as far as my interaction with you or your interaction with me. And that is this idea of fatalism. We don't want to get to fatalism. Just because God knows, just because God has a perfect plan, and just because that perfect plan is going to come fast, does not mean that the actions that we take are insignificant. In fact, much the other way, it matters a great deal what we do. I have a question. Yes, on, on the, um, if you have the Greek, would it say predestined in the Greek, or does it say something different? It does, but it says it with a different meaning. I can't remember. Word off the okay. Top of my head. Okay. Uh, but to answer that, and I don't know if Facebook could hear you or not, so I'll ask again. Does Dot ask, uh, does the Greek affirm this notion of predestined, or does it have some other meaning and we've transferred it as predestined? Um, and the answer to that is yes to both. Um, when we talked a while back, I'm not sure, I think it was God's. It was when we talked about omnipresence, I think. Um, but I drew the circle, and it was the ideal world, and, and all of that. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, really. I thought somewhere I had read mm -hmm. that, but I didn't remember what it said either. But maybe you might want to look that up. Uh, and then you can tell me actually what it said. All right. I will say to you that though, Stoic philosophy has a lot to do with how the biblical writers wrote. So in their notion of predestination, it also had with it that idea that there was a finite number of souls, and for that finite number, there was a prescribed end. Uh, but yes, I will come back with a more detailed answer to that. All right, so it does matter, though, what we do. Uh, because God has created us in his image. And what does it mean to be in his image, and what does it mean to have free will. When we put those together, it means that we have the ability to change and to act and to, uh, this is a redundant phrase, but and to commit action. Um, and those things that we do have real effects. So we see, if we think about God in this way, uh, if we turn to Genesis 1, for example, God says, let there be light, and there was light. He said it, it happened. Um, even here, what we have, we've just read from Acts chapter 4, God predestined that the crucifixion of Christ was going to take place at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
it happened. Uh, similarly, if I take this mask up and throw it down the aisle, it's going to happen. Now, I can't tell you how far it's going to go, not very far, not very athletic. Uh, but the actions that we take have real consequences and they have real effects. So we don't need to assume that there is no use in us doing anything because God's going to take care of it for us. Uh, we are created as agents of God, as representatives of God in this world, and we act in accordance with this plan. So last week we looked at a whole bunch of verses that dealt with this, and today let's kind of break those down and analyze them a little bit. Firstly, God uses all things to fulfill his purposes, and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. That he uses all things to fulfill his purposes, and even uses evil for his glory and our good. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Of course, that phrase there is we're thinking about this morning to those who were called according to his purpose. God has a plan as we establish. God has a plan for each one of us. He knows our days before we're even born. He knows our days before we're even a thought in our mother's mind. He knew our days before our mother was a thought in our grandmother's mind. God has all of that information immediately available to him. And so we all have a plan and we all have a and no matter what goes on, God's going to use that in order to bring about his good and perfect plan. It's the same thing in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it good. And then we can also see that God is glorified even in the punishment of evil. So God is a just God, he is a holy God. We tend to try to separate the loving God that so many people seem to find in the, in the New Testament from the judgmental, wrathful God in the Old Testament. It's the same God. We're still dealing with the same thing. As I've said before, hell is still very real and it's very high. So Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, it's Old Testament notion, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That is, God has made wicked in order to punish it. Because he is glorified in that. The psalmist says this, Psalms chapter 76, verse 10, Psalm 76, excuse me. Surely the wrath of men shall praise you. The wrath of men, that anger that we exact on them for sin, shall praise you. And then, of course, we have that example of Pharaoh uh, that Paul brings back before Friday in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 24. That clear example of the way that God uses evil for his own glory and for the good of his people. All right. But in saying all that, the second thing is God never does evil and he's never to be blamed for evil. <clears throat> so Jesus, I'll give you the three gospel texts that I'll say basically the same thing. Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. And Mark chapter 14, verse 21, all report Jesus saying in different ways. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
And of course, David, Jesus is talking about the judgment that is going to come upon Judas for his betrayal of Christ. <coughs> and I think we can extend that to the Jews who have put him up for crucifixion, and perhaps the Romans who have done that. And then Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. It's necessary. Because of the world that we live in, we're going to be tempted with things, we're going to be faced with people, we're going to have to deal with it in one way or another. And in fact, God uses those experiences to build us, to grow us in who we are as Christians. Why does he do that? Because he needs us for that perfect plan. So it's all very intertwined here. But this overall warning, James, chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, there says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So one of the things that we have to attempt to understand, and I won't even say that I understand it all that well, but one of the things that we have to attempt to understand is God's perfect plan with never Adam and Eve and all their descendants in the garden. When we read Hebrews, when we read Revelation, other texts, we see that God's perfect plan is the death of Christ on the cross, that he might be raised again, that he might redeem and reconcile the whole world for our sins. Because to say that Adam and Eve was the perfect plan means that there was some power, namely Satan and evil, that was greater than God, that was able to subvert God. But no, that's not the case. God knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. And before the foundation of the world, as we understand Christ from Hebrews, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, why was he slain? Because God knew also, before the foundation of the world, what Adam and Eve were going to do and what was going to result from that. But he also knew how he was going to fix that. Now, John Calvin, scary man in the Baptist, we put Calvin in predestination in the same category. <laughs> But he says, talking about how we can't blame God for evil, he says, thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of divine providence. And the Lord himself uses these to carry out the judgments that he has determined within himself. <coughs> Yet I deny they can derive, this, any, derive from this any excuse for their evil deeds. Why? Will they either involve God in the same iniquity with themselves, or will they cloak their own depravity with his justice? They can do neither. God is a just God. God is a holy God. Just because the evil act that causes you to become who you were supposed to be for the kingdom doesn't mean that that is right in the eyes of God. Because there is a world where everybody does the right thing, and that plan still comes to fruition. So, if we are to say that God Himself does evil, we're going to have to say that he's not a good and righteous God. I'm going to say that. Because if he's not good and righteous, then he's not really God at all. 
But if we maintain that God does not use evil to fulfill his purposes, then we have to admit that there is an evil in the universe that he didn't intend, and is not under his control, and might not fulfill his purposes, just like we said about the garden. So this would make it very difficult then for us to affirm that all things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose if he doesn't have all things under his control. When we talk about the authority of God as given to him, Christ, we see by his other attributes, that means God has to be in control of and authoritative over even the evil in the world. So if God didn't have that kind of control, what guarantees do we have that he'll be able to use it for his purposes or that we might never be able to pray to God and receive any relief from our situation? Philippians tells us I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How can you do all things if God's not in control of all things? He doesn't have authority over all things. Thirdly, God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil that they do. We've just been talking about this in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 3 to 4. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose affliction for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So the blame for evil then is always upon the responsible creature that does it. And the creature who does evil is always worthy of punishment. That is why a just God can send unrepentant sinners to hell. I heard that sigh right there. It's a sad morning. <laughs> <laughs> Morality established in Scripture of how we ought to pay 
when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, part of that is to deliver us from evil. And if we see anyone wandering from the truth, James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, then we should attempt to bring them back. And then he goes on to say that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we should also never will for evil to be done. And that's sometimes pretty difficult. Uh, when somebody does something to you, it's pretty tempting and often is my response, and I think probably everybody else is too, well, other than kind of But we're not to pray for that. Uh, a few Sundays ago, Sunday nights ago, when I preached one of the things that uh, I talked about in Zechariah chapter 8, there is that Israel never prays for God's wrath to be exacted on their enemies or their own but they pray for God's wrath to be exacted on their enemies for God's own justification. That God is who he says that he is, and they pray for that in order that he might reveal who he is. But we're never to will evil to be done for our own benefit. And then we must also remember that there are things that are right for God to do, but wrong for us to do. Judge. We don't have the power to judge. I don't want the power to judge. He seeks glory for himself. If we seek glory for ourselves, that's called ambition, and that never been too well. There's a great difference between what is fitting for our will and what is fitting for God's will. Because God can use the bad wills to fulfill his own righteous will. And then another example comes from the theologian Herman Bannock, who uses this analogy of a parent using a sharp knife, you're not going to hand that to your kid and let them use it. Which, you know, fine for you to use it. It's not necessarily wrong for your kid to use it, but they don't have to use it. They might hurt themselves or hurt someone else. And that sharp knife is kind of like evil. God knows how to use it to bring about his own perfect plan for us. To make good for those of us who love him. We don't have to do that. And we do evil, it's always about so. Alright, and now we come to the big bugaboo of the morning. Do we actually have free will? Because you've just talked about a lot of stuff that God has control over that we don't. Uh, the answer to that is yes, we do. It's not what time control. Oh, TMO. We won't get through. Um, do we have free will? As as good Baptists, our answer is yes. And that remains the case. It may not be like we think we have necessarily. So the question is, if God exercises this providential control, if he knows everything that's going to happen, if he has our days numbered, if his actions are that solidified, are we in any sense at all free? Well, we have to decide what we mean by the word free here. And I have notes, but I'm going to go away from them. 
it is worry-free for us, particularly as Americans. Uh, we have this notion of freedom to do things and freedom from things. So we have freedom uh, of religion. We have freedom to worship how we wish and who we wish. Uh, we have freedom of speech to say what we want to say. On that freedom of speech issue, uh, we also have a lot of the slander laws. You're free to say whatever you want to say as long as it's not untrue or damaging to somebody's reputation. Um, we have freedom on the religion issue. We have freedom from religious persecution. So when we think about freedom, we always think of this as an either or. I'm free to do this, or I'm free to do that, or I'm free to do the other. It doesn't necessarily mean two, but it means that we have some sort of choice. Now, Calvin, and I don't necessarily agree with Calvin, but I'm going to read you what Calvin says. He says, man then will then be spoken of as having this sort of free decision, not because he has free choice equally of good and evil, but because he acts wickedly by will, not by compulsion. Well put indeed, but what purpose is served by labeling with a proud name such a slight thing? Okay, let's break down what Calvin says, because here I don't have so many issues. First, he says, man will then be spoken of as having this sort of free decision, not because he has free choice equally of good and evil. What does he mean by that? We don't get to decide whether or not we have a sin nature before we went. Adam and Eve made that decision for us. So we're already more predisposed, or would they bend toward evil? So we don't have a free choice equally of good and evil. Because he acts wickedly by will, there again. Our moral compass as people in a fallen world is bent toward evil, to wickedness. But we're not compelled to do that. That is who we are as people. It says not by compulsion. That is who we are. And some people, I will, I will grant you, some people are much better even as children than other people are. But there's still something. We're all I mean, I don't care who you are. At some point, you either told a lie, you've stolen something, you've talked back. I mean, any number of small things that we get onto our children for, we've all done it at some point. So for Calvin, he says, why would you want to call this a free choice? You don't really have a free choice to choose to be evil because you're born that way. And why would you want to label that anyway? Why wouldn't you want God to intervene and to change the direction of your heart and to recreate you into that person being formed into the image of Christ clothed with his righteousness? <coughs> but scripture says in no places that there is anything, any freedom outside of God's control. There again, God has to be in control in order to have that authority. Similarly, there are no scriptures that say we're able to make decisions that are not caused by anything. There's no such thing as a snap decision. Even if you go to Walmart and you decide you want to buy the box of Oreos off the shelf, it's because you like the Oreos. If you go and you buy something you've never tried before, it's because you want to try it. There's always an impulse behind it. You don't just randomly do things. One of my favorite things, <laughs> and I don't know if I should tell this, but I'm live sharing. I'll do it in a second. 
Uh, I had a student who decided to plagiarize. Second assignment. Time to get this out of the way earlier. But I sent him an email and I gave him the opportunity to redo it. He, he would not redo the assignment. So I sent him another one. I said, well, why did you do it in the first place? Well, I don't know. Yeah, you know. I'm sorry, you made a choice. You went up there and copied and pasted your classmate's answer and changed three words and listed it as your own. That was a willful choice to do that. This is a, you know, 18, 19, I don't know, 20-year-old average is man, essentially. Well, we have kids do that all the time. We'll pick on Jay's games and then hear you test a little bit. Dale and Steve, y'all can attest to this. There are times Jay does something, you get up to it, and his response is, I don't know. Or maybe Jace is more honest with you. He does exactly what he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no way that we can get away with it. I don't know. Because there is always a reason, and you do make that conscious, really, choice. Unless there is a case of the mental deficiency, or whatever the case may be. Uh, there are reasons why you wouldn't know. But on the whole, we choose to make this. And that is exactly what our free will is. We make those willing choices, and those choices have real effects. Okay. Now, the, the big question, and we will come to this, I don't know if we'll come to this now, we'll come to this later. And we'll, when we get to the question of salvation, uh, there, there's always this issue of, did I make the choice to be saved, or did God choose me to be saved? And I would just tell you on the front that for me personally, it's yes, it's both hands. It is God's sovereign choice that you be saved, but you also make that free choice to be saved. It is given to you as a free gift, but you're not going to get by it. God, he knows. So we have to be aware that we have this power of a willing choice, so we don't fall into that error of fatalism that says our choices don't matter. But we also must understand that our freedom is given to us in the confines of God's providential control and of God's authority and what it is that God knows and has decreed. We go back to where we started in this Hebrew chapter 1 verse 3, that Christ is continually carrying along things by, the word, by his word of power. His word of power must include total authority, total control, total knowledge in order that he may continue to sustain it and preserve it. So, this absolute freedom that puts us outside of God's providence and totally free of his control is not actually possible in a world with a providential, omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere present God. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.